The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, uh, so welcome. Um, so I, I don't usually <clears throat> do talks on lists. Um, sort of because I I like how the lists interact with each other or the facets of the list uh, interact with each other. But um, today, a talk on a list, yeah. And um, it's almost like we, we can get... Um, we almost get too familiar with the list over time. I mean, when we're new, it's different. But as we practice over years, we sometimes get so familiar with Buddhist lists that we almost lose track of their brilliance. And um, and I was, was uh, talking to a friend, a colleague of mine, um, who said something like uh, that she she just basically assiduously followed the eightfold path deep into her practice you know years into practice um, just assiduously followed that in trying to implement that in all spheres of her life and it changed everything yeah and it's like not that shouldn't have shocked me, kind of, right? But there was something about um, understanding her mind, the potency of her mind, and then just to say, like, yeah, these kind of, um, this this list, yeah, meant everything. And so uh, in our own practice, we apply these, uh, we, we pick up these, these themes, these teachings, at greater depth and nuance, and uh, they come to mean more and more to us over time. And what we hear in a list, the first time we hear it, is so different from the hundredth time we hear it. It was really a different list. The the Dharma generally revolves around uh, what's to be let go, what's to be released. And the basic architecture of the, the view is that, uh, in a sense, suffering is our only problem. Yeah? That to relinquish suffering is not a trivial thing, and in its wake leaves just many species of goodness. It's not that we let go of suffering and then we have to create some other kind of positivity. Yeah. Um, and so quite naturally the, the attention goes to the untangling deconstruction of the, the sources of suffering. Um, but then what, what is actively cultivated? What species of wholesomeness are actively cultivated? And um, one of those, those um, 
list, what's actively cultivated, the the goodness that helps us keep going, the sometimes celebrated as a kind of like the anti-hindrances, the seven factors of awakening. And so the Buddha says, uh, I do not even see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors are both a kind of um, the path and the fruit. It's often how these teachings are. They're both the path and the fruit, the practice and the culmination, the um, the work that we do and the fruit that is harvest. And there's a story of the Buddha somewhere in the suttas being um, sick at night and asking one of his disciples to almost like uh, as a kind of the feeling I had of like a kind of bedtime story, yeah, of um, o, o, Okunda, bring to mind the seven factors of, of enlightenment, bring, you know, speak them to me in that state of sickness at night. In you know, our practice um, in meetings, practice discussions, interviews on retreat, for example, um, so much of the time there's some form of suffering that's being, people are seeking consultation on one way or another, but what happens when they're not? Yeah, What does the teacher do when there's no report of of uh, active coarse suffering mostly we just say keep going yeah um but uh sometimes sometimes we say uh let us examine you know like uh, uh the these seven factors to see the relative balance of the energizing side of practice and the tranquilizing side of practice uh because a lot of this path is a kind of uh it's a kind of dialectic between um between different forces a lot of this practice is a dialectic between the absence of suffering and the emergence of new currents of suffering, sometimes deeper layers, currents of suffering. And so um, this, these um, states are, um, uh, the, as we get more and more free, the mind states are increasingly characterized by a kind of some balance of these seven factors of of uh, mindfulness as a kind of balancing point of the energizing and tranquilizing factors of uh, investigation, energy, effort. Um, 
intense joy, rapture on the energizing side and tranquility, samadhi, the unification of mind and, uh, and equanimity on the, the, the tranquilizing side. And um, Sayadaw Tejaniya said something like, the, the first, the first, said something like, um, mindfulness, investigation, ener- energetic vigor, effort, these are the causes, and every, the others are the the effects. Yeah, which is an interesting formulation. They have complex relationships with each other, and so, um, in a way, we uh, even though the the characterization of the tranquility fact aside as being the effects, yeah, not something we do. We sort of have to begin, you know, with a little bit of tranquility. Otherwise, um, there's no room to digest the impermanence, the, the impermanence and the imperfection of experience if there's no tranquility. Yeah, to try to let go, to try to open, to try to soften, all of these things uh, are are very difficult to do in the absence of some modicum of tranquility. And so there's um, a lot of relations between these different facets in our uh, our practice. Um, So mindfulness... Mindfulness is uh, its a word that's been used in so many ways. One of my mentors said, we just have to throw it out, you know. <laughs> it's just been so, it's like a, a pocket into which so many things have been put that uh, the word has sort of lost all meaning, integrity, something like this. And sometimes, in fact, the way mindfulness is used is a kind of umbrella term for the seven factors. Yeah, if you actually hear the way it's used in popular culture, it's actually it's not sati in the narrow kind of sense. A lot of other beautiful qualities are smuggled under in the back door kind of to this this umbrella term of mindfulness. And um I'm not blaming the wonderful John Kabat-Zinn for this, but John Kabat-Zinn did say this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is 2000, 2011. Um, said mindfulness-based stress reduction, which which uh, he has uh, developed this eight-week program that's been a, a tremendous blessing to many people. And uh, my life, no doubt, is a function of the kind of efforts, uh, his efforts and many others. Um, said, mindfulness-based stress reduction was developed as one of, poss- of a possibly infinite number of skillful means for bringing the Dharma into mainstream settings. It has never been about MBSR for its own sake. It's always been about the M, and the M is a very big M. We use the word mindfulness intentionally as an umbrella term to describe our work and to link it explicitly 
with what I have always considered to be a universal dharma that is coextensive, if not identical with, the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma. Um, that um, we do need a word. We do need a word to try to convey the depth and the beauty, the richness of the Dharma. And um, in this case, mindfulness was choos- chosen. Yeah, and. Um, and there are consequences. There are definitional consequences to that decision. Yeah. And so, what do we mean when we say mindfulness? Um, um, we can talk about it in these sort of more pared-down ways or more grand ways. Um, and in a sense, to for mindfulness to to really, it, it's never been described as a single, it, it's always conjoined with other factors, yeah, in the way that a big umbrella term kind of implies. And so I um, do actually link mindfulness with, with uh, the kind of... Um, an awareness that lets go, an awareness that is just already conjoined with other factors, an awareness that um, is um, aware of the movements of suffering, of the movements of greed, of an aversion, um, but is uncompelled by them. That sense of like, I was alluding to this in the sit, sense that the the awareness is a little bit bigger than the forces of suffering. And that when awareness is present, no matter what suffering is there, something else is also true. And it's a subtle move, this gesture of awareness, but it's radical. And sometimes it just, just, uh, just that that sense of knowing suffering in the clarity and the openness of awareness does not erase all of the unpleasantness or something, but it's enough that our life all of a sudden feels quite different than it did one moment ago when we were fully identified with the phenomena of suffering. And so we usually talk about mindfulness as a kind of what rescues us from our habits, particularly the bad habits, yeah? The sense of that there's, without some metacognitive awareness, we are just living in obedience to our habits. And um, that's fair enough. But um, mindfulness also becomes a habit and helps us develop good habits. And the sense of that we have often early in practice of like, okay, I'm going to leave here 
and I'm going to go have my day, and I've got to be mindful. I got to remember. That's not that's not how it feels. I don't think as we continue practicing, it's not this sense of mindfulness is this this um, this kind of thing we like the on the grocery list. Like I have to remember carrots, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> And you you know when you kind of do a bad shop, you sort of like get discombobulated or whatever. I can kind of feel it at the register. Like, I just, I messed up, you know. <laughs> I'm forgetting a lot, you know. Like, And, and we kind of have this sense of like, oh yeah, my, I could just keep forgetting the mindfulness or something like this. And it's okay to try to motivate like, explicit cognitive control or something but to some extent what we are actually training in is the elevating the trait level of mindfulness the mindfulness that exists in the way a habit exists yeah that we actually don't have to remember in the same way that we're more mindful when we're not trying to be mindful and that's important because we'll never be able to remember enough consciously. Yeah. Mm. Investigation, um, which is of course enabled by mindfulness, um, and investigation, investigation to me, not not about um, some ex kind of um, top down cognitively trying to figure something out, trying to figure out like sometimes investigation and rumination, the line is thin, you know, like how did I get here? Why do I feel this way? Where am I going? And those questions can kind of like masquerade as deep existential inquiries, but they actually have a kind of ruminative, obsessive feel to them. And, um, and investigation is not kind of loosely looking for some answer out of the ether or something. It's a kind of sustained attention to the the unfolding of experience the connection between moments and um, I associate it a lot with curiosity which is really kind of the lifeblood of this practice I don't know where that where if that's in a list somewhere in you know but I you know investigation is like very closely linked to curiosity. And the truth is there's no cure for a lack of curiosity. And there's nothing a teacher can say to keep you engaged unless you find something that you get interested in. Like, I want to understand this. I want to know why I keep doing this. I want to know... Um, some facet of my mind. I want to understand something. 
And in a sense, when there's curiosity present, because it's so agendaless, it's not like I want to get happier even. It's like a very deeply trustworthy intention for animating practice. I want to understand more. And there's a kind of patience in it. And there's um, a sense of, it's not even the point to get to some answer. There's like no final answer. There's just deepening and refining and nuance and, and more curiosity. And we find our kind of cruising altitude in our autobiographical story of who we are, of what we are, of what the path is, of where we're going, of what happiness is. And then that rug will be pulled out before too long, hopefully. yeah. And that ignites a kind of new sense of curiosity, a new round where we're no longer satisfied with the stories we've been feeding ourselves. The, somewhere the Buddha says that we have four options when in pain, blame self, blame others, despair, or investigate. Yeah. That's not a hard multiple choice question, <laughs> you know. Um, it's like, okay, what is happening here? And we do develop a kind of uh, faith, really, in the looking. A faith, not that everything's okay or anything like that, but a faith that um, maybe we just say a faith in wisdom, faith in love. A faith that the more deeply we look, the more Dharma we will find, the more the more the deep more deeply we look, the more reason there will be to uh, to love. And so we're not so afraid of what we'll find. Yeah. Hmm. Energy, virya. Um, this is among the most emphasized themes in the suttas. And um, I think because this path is against the stream, uh, genuinely against the stream. In some ways it's with the stream, in other ways it's against the stream. And it's against the stream in the sense that neurosis is often the path of least resistance. Yeah? Like my neurosis is just like so happily floating down a stream, you know? <laughs> Strong current at my back, you know? Like Gil has the, in some of the, the way he talks about Satipatthana, I think I picked, I remember slides from Gil where it's somebody coasting down 
the water just relax the effortless of mindfulness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the stream of neurosis where it takes zero energy for me to act it out, right? And we all know those moments where it's like, for sure, like the easiest thing to do right now, the absolute easiest thing to do is to express the forces of suffering and my own bad habits, you know, right? So what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, what are we going to do? We're going to mobilize energy, effort, Sometimes, not always, sometimes we really are in the stream of goodness and the goodness and the awareness and everything feels effortless. Um, but that's often a function of prior effort, yeah? And so we marshal our energy because um, growth is hard. It takes energy. You know, it's like when kids going through a growth spurt and they have to like really rest or something. It's like that. And, um, so we're, um, we marshal some effort in order not to obey the dictates of greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah. And um, this path is a, it's a renunciate path in the sense that it, it is not a something for nothing path. Uh, and sometimes we get the sense that just because oh, the awareness is, is so powerful and that the this most simple gesture of it can sometimes bring incredible relief. We get the sense that maybe, maybe, if I'm making effort, I must be doing it wrong. It is, we have some sense that the lure of something for nothing, you know, is deep in us. But, um, but it's not. We are, we're not giving up things for no reason. We're giving up lesser forms of pleasure for deeper forms of satiation. Um, And, uh, and uh, rapture, rapture, a rapture born of letting go, doing really badly on time here. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes, um, sometimes this is, this is translated as, um, as joy, but it's sort of more, and and we want to make the definition accessible, but it's more energetic than that, more effervescent than that, more compelling, a kind of like, just the the attention just sucked into the flow of this 
And um, because it's so, normally our thoughts are the most prominent thing in experience by far, by far. But that can change. And a sense of, um, of um, uh, piti, uh, rapture, that becomes more compelling than anything else. And um, this is usually experience, usually pleasant, but sometimes not pleasant. And at some point, even that, you know, as unimaginable as that might be rapturous pleasure, isn't that why I'm here? Isn't that what I'm in, you know, why I'm doing all this letting go and whatever, you know, for rapturous pleasure? Even that gets old, yeah? Even that gets old. But it is significant insofar as it does confirm that um, this path is not a con. Yeah, it's not another shell game. And when we start to see like, I didn't know that I could feel this way. Uh, I didn't know that I could settle into the moment in this kind of rapturous way. You're like, okay, this induces faith. And it's a sense of like, uh, mm, there's something here for me. And the power, we actually sometimes, for some people, it's the first deep glimpse of the power of our mind, which we have underestimated forever. Um. This kind of um, delight is said to give way to uh, calm, yeah, which is a little bit the reverse of what we think about. We think we get calm in order to then become happier, but here it's kind of reverse. It's happiness, and then we get calm, we get settled, we get focused, we get, you know. but uh, but come um, this pivot to the tranquilizing side of uh, the path and the ways in which our, our nervous system is just longing to be unstimulated, just longing to be unstimulated. We, we think we're always looking for pleasure or something, but we're usually looking for pleasure to balance out the intensity of something else. And peace, this tranquility, maybe the beginning of that, is um, in a sense our deepest longing. I almost think of it as the nervous system longing for the Dharma to be at peace. It, It is as far as I can tell, the only thing that does not fatigue the heart, peace. And so to begin to settle, to begin to settle, to find ways of breathing, to find signs, anchors, ways of attending that bring some measure of tranquility in, is necessary in order um, 
in order to do the work of letting go, you know, it's like if we're trying to uh, trying to to let go and open to experience from a very untranquil state, it just feels like it makes our mind more brittle. There's no more space. It's filling a cup that's already overflowing. And so we learn ways of of bringing in some calm. And over all the years of practice now. It, it's almost like even no matter what's happening in my mind, my, there's like such deep associations with the posture and with the sense of the, the breath and the sense of gravity that something, you know, it's like this kind of cue that just induces a measure of tranquility. And then there's more room to bear with the imperfection of samsara. When there is um, tranquility, less agitation, there's less of a, a kind of searching and foraging for, for food for the mind to medicate our agitation. Yeah, that sense of like, we're, we're often kind of just scanning the realm of our own thought world as a way to um, to medicate, to medicate the, the sense of, of um, threat and the sense that of, of unacquired opportunity. And so this tranquility, when that begins to settle, when there are not alarm bells going off in our system moment by moment, what else is there to do other than just pay some attention? And so we settle into to samadhi, to the kind of unification of the mind. And, um, and samadhi linked, of course, with rapture, rapturous joy. Um, Samadhi is what what turns the Dharma into something more than a philosophy. The Dharma is really, it's a good philosophy, but it won't save us as a philosophy. And then we have to, it has to become real. Yeah has to become real. Uh, it has to be be realized, yeah. Which, which yeah, one uh, credit, literary critic, you know, Eve Sedgwick said like, oh yeah, to, the difference between knowledge and realization is in realization, something becomes real, as real as this very room. And for the Dharma to become real, it, it requires some measure of samadhi. Otherwise, it's just kind of a appealing set of ideas that we sort of clumsily try to apply to our life. But until we actually start to hear the Dharma from a place of unification, of steadiness, it's, um, 
is not so useful. And so we, um, we come into alignment. It feels like all the, all the pieces and parts of us all of a sudden start moving in the same direction. And the kind of ambivalence and the sense of being fr- the fragmentation of the self um, just recedes. And we are all, all of us is moving in one direction. It feels more and more natural just to rest the attention with what we decide is relevant. And um, we get so, um, so um, we kind of use uh, the level of discursive thinking as the barometer for our samadhi and for our practice generally. We sort of take the surface layer of the mind very seriously and we use that to measure how still we are but the truth is there are processes of stillness that happen outside of the, the realm of discursive thought. And that's why when people have been sitting in retreat, for example, uh, for a few days or a couple weeks, as ha- people have been at Insight Retreat Center now, yeah, um, even if their minds are still florid with thought. Um, There's a deepening that's happening, some kind of silence is setting in. And I associate samadhi with the unification of mind, but also with the plasticity of mind. Its sense of depth and it's, it's how deeply impressionable it becomes. Yeah. And so the mind... The, the mind that is stabilized is a very, is a deeply impressionable mind. And whatever we learn under the conditions of samadhi has legs. Yeah. The insights that we gather, the understandings that we cultivate, the realizations that we have under conditions of samadhi, it has legs. It stays with us. We all know the sense of the the light of some insight or some understanding fading over time. Insight developed under under conditions of the unification, under conditions of samadhi, have legs, yeah, stays. And um, in in the experience of samadhi, of piti, of of the kind of delight of every part of us moving in the same direction, um, uh, we we have a kind of the the movement of the heart is not towards the intensity of pleasure but towards the neutrality of uh of of um equanimity of a kind of 
the the heart mind like utterly unstimulated by the winds of phenomena a sense of something in us is the longing to be unstimulated by the winds of phenomena and we we this is as as upekka uh, equanimity deepens there's a, a sense of um at least first it's a sense not of the absence of preferences but the absence of the compulsion to enact our preferences that that distinction makes sense the so it's not that that there isn't preference but the sense of like the compulsion to bring our preferences into being to make something happen and all of the agitation and strategizing requiring to bring clinging to fruition that starts to fade and um but in that process um something in us is being softened it's like i think i said something like the kalesas are softening our heart or something like that which is a weird formulation and i'm not even sure it makes sense but that's how it, it kind of feels to me it's like the forces of clinging when they're met in the the kind of openness of equanimity it feels like something is being softened one of my teachers shins and young called equanimity the primary cathartic factor of mindfulness yeah of the path the primary cathartic factor is being allu- alluding to the sense of um of release that happens the softening that happens when when the when the forces of clinging actually soften rather than harden our heart I think it's said that equanimity when it really ripens is the the closest approximation of awakening but the amidst this like radical okayness and this non-interference with all phenomena with the winds of samsara we don't actually lose the poignancy of our life of life itself the poignancy of of suffering the suffering world um love is only a kind of stone's throw away from peace and the mind that is that is stable that is tranquilized that is gathered that is equanimous um just just one kind of drop of love uh, flavors everything yeah.
So I offer this for uh, your consideration. Yeah. And um, seven factors. Yeah. So may they uh, may they be the practice. May they be the fruit. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, please uh, pick up whatever is uh, useful here and um, ignore the rest. Yeah, like for real, you know, you this is your path, and you have to be the the kind of uh, judge of what is what is useful, and you sort of test things out, and um, uh, you see. Yeah, you're patient, patient, but you test them out, and um, and. Um, this is the way our path unfolds in our very idiosyncratic way. Yeah. So, um, so thank you, thank you for your uh, attention, and uh, thank you to uh, the crew on YouTube and to to you, Martha, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for say hi to them for me. Okay, chat, chat them. They know they should still be able to hear me, but thank you, Kevin. Um, okay, folks, you uh, you be well, and um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you see you around the Dharma campus somewhere. So. <laughs>